In the ancient world, women were seen as almost subhuman. Women were looked at as uh, just above the level of dogs in the ancient world. Uh, And so for those of you who might say that uh, the Bible is oppressively patriarchal, uh, you've not actually read the Bible. No offense, uh, but you've just seen that on a, on a meme somewhere. Uh, but the Bible is actually not oppressively patriarchal uh, at all. In fact, God is continually making women the hero of his stories. Like continually, from beginning to end. Uh, we've already seen that in Exodus chapter 1, uh, when the midwives get the best of Pharaoh. Uh, and we'll see it again here today in chapter 2, when Moses' mother does. Okay, uh, and so today, uh, if you're new with us, we're, we're just kind of taking verse by verse uh, through the book of Exodus. And so today we come to Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses uh, of Exodus chapter 2. Uh, before we jump in, uh, you need to know that in a very widespread way, uh, Hebrew mothers were finding ways to hide their boy children from Pharaoh. Okay, so Pharaoh had given the edict to kill all of the... Hebrew sons, all the Hebrew boys, uh, and the mothers didn't just take that lying down, okay? The, the Hebrew women weren't like, sir, yes, sir, we will kill all of our boys. No, no, they were being very, very active in hiding their boys, okay? Uh, but first prize, first prize for creativity goes to Moses' mother. This is pretty awesome what she does. With her boy. Let's look at it. Let's look at verses 1 through 10 uh, of Exodus chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's okay. The verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 1. Now a man from the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. And coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older... She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, so Pharaoh's daughter names this boy Moses, which is Hebrew for out of the waters. Out of the waters. Which, if you know anything about the Exodus story, is quite the foreshadowing. (laughs) It's quite the foreshadowing here. Now, what Moses' mother does with him is very cagey. 
Uh, and you need to know that none of this is an accident. She has planned this whole thing down to every detail. And so uh, she puts them in a cradle boat, puts them in the banks of the Nile, right where the Egyptian women come to bathe. And just when she knows the Pharaoh's daughter will come down to bathe. And so Moses' mom was counting on something. She was counting on something. She was counting on the cuteness of babies. Okay? That's what she was counting on. You know, you don't have to be a huge fan of children in general to have your heart moved by a baby. It's just hard. You know, like... You can not like children, but man, when you see it, it's a tiny little baby, this tiny little human, tiny fingers and tiny toes. Oh man, it's just, it does something to your heart, okay? And so Moses' mom is counting on that. She is counting on the princess's heart to go out to baby Moses, and that's precisely what happens, precisely what happens. And I think the princess knows exactly what's going on here. She, she gets it, okay? She even says uh, right here in the text, hey, this is a Hebrew child. She knows what's going on. She gets it. She knows some Hebrew mother has come up with a plan to save her baby, and the princess is totally cool with it. <laughs> she's fine with it. In fact, she sees an opportunity to take this child for herself. So she's cool with this plan. And then, not coincidentally, Miriam, Moses' sister, comes up to the princess and says, hey, uh, you know, I could get a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for you, if you like. And the princess loves that idea. She's like, yeah, 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 go do that. And guess who Miriam goes to get to nurse baby Moses? Moses' own mother. <laughs> Moses' own mother. You don't think this was the plan? This was the plan. Oh, and by the way, uh, Moses' mom is going to get paid raising him did you see that <laughs> this is a sweet deal baby not only does she save her boy she's going to get paid by the princess to raise him <laughs> this is amazing i told you first prize she gets first prize for creativity in the way that she saves her boy and so for the first eight years or so of moses's life he is raised by his own family it's amazing and therefore moses is able to learn about his heritage and Hebrew identity. But of course, at the same time, Moses was in Pharaoh's house. This is not just an Egyptian house. It's Pharaoh's house. And there he got the greatest skills and education in the entire world. Right there in Pharaoh's home. He could not have gotten it anywhere else. Hebrews, being slaves and all, you know, they were not allowed to get educated or get any kind of training. And so they had no access to this, but Moses did. Moses had access to the finest training and the finest education in the entire world. But this puts Moses in a weird spot. He is a prince of Egypt, but he's also a prince of Israel at the same time. And so Moses knew that one day he would have to choose between the two. He would have to choose an identity. He can't live as both forever. And one day, when Moses was about 40 years old, the decision was forced upon him. It was forced upon him. Let's look at verses 11 through 15. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, 
and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So, when the moment came for Moses to choose an identity, he chose Israel. But he chose in a very sinful and stupid way. This is like the stupidest way Moses could have gone about this. But that's what he did. He murdered an Egyptian. Now, a pagan prince is allowed to lose his temper and kill a citizen. It happened all the time. Okay? Nobles could get away with just about anything. <laughs> and so at most, Moses was in line for maybe a slap on the hand. Now, now. Don't murder the citizenry. Okay, go on about your day. That's what he was in for. About a slap on the wrist was about, you know, he could have just made up some story about, you know, this guy was talking smack to me and I had to blah, blah, blah. You know, he could have done that and the Pharaoh would have been fine. It would have been no big deal. He would have gotten his wrist slapped. But what we see here is an example of Moses being caught between two worlds. His heart is with Israel, but his mind and his actions are still Egyptian. He's caught between the two worlds. And then when he realizes that his own people, the Israelites, have now rejected him, he comes to the realization that his power to kill doesn't win their hearts. Okay? Word is getting out about what he's done, and they have rejected him for it. They're not giving Moses applause. They have actually rejected Moses. And so now Moses has a very, very tough choice to make. He could go to Pharaoh... And he could make up a story, like I said, about what happened, make up some excuse, and Pharaoh would not have gotten very upset with him, okay? But Moses decided to go all in on being an Israelite. Now, this is a much more difficult decision than you probably realize. He could have easily gone back to this rich, insanely wealthy and beautiful and glorious palace of Pharaoh, he could have just moved right back into the Egyptian culture and everything would have been fine. But here is Moses. He has two people groups to choose from. And now, because of his murder of the Egyptian, he knows that if he chooses Israel, he'll go from having two people groups to having none. He'll actually go from two to having zero because he knows He'll have to go live in exile in order to be a Hebrew. And yet, that's exactly what he does. He still chooses to be a Hebrew. Why? Because that is where Moses' heart is. His heart is with Israel. 
And so, at this point in the story, Moses' upbringing by his mom and sister and his incredible training and learning with the Egyptians, it kind of all seems pointless, right? I mean, it all actually accomplished nothing. Moses is now stuck tending sheep in the desert. He's just sitting on a well. I love that picture of Moses. Like, <laughs> all right, verse 15, right? He's just like, just sitting on a well in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, all of this amazing upbringing, it's all amounted to nothing. He's tending sheep in the desert. His career is dead. He doesn't have a people at all anymore. He's not a leader of anything. And it looks like his whole life has been a waste. And when chapter 2 ends, the people are crying out in their bondage, and Moses is at a dead end. Let's close in prayer this morning. I'm kidding. Uh, but I mean, this is kind of odd, isn't it? This is like a super odd way to start this story. <laughs> right? I mean, this is crazy. Think about it. Exodus opens with the horrifying oppression of the Israelites. It's horrifying what's happening to them. Then the author teases us with the birth of a deliverer. And then, just as we get our hopes up, the deliverer blows it. Like spectacularly blows it. And we're like, oh, so close. So close. But actually, this isn't the bummer that it appears to be. The author here actually teaches us three amazing things. Number one on your outline today. The first thing he teaches us here is that God's people cannot fail. They cannot fail. So do you think Moses' life was ruined because he sinned? Was it ruined? Here's what's so crazy about this story. You know, we've got all this, like I said, just horrifying oppression happening to the Israelites. Then we have this alleged deliverer just blowing it, royally blowing it, okay? But look here. First of all, let's think about how amazing this is. If Pharaoh did not try to kill the babies, then Moses would not have had the unique background that enabled him to lead his oppressed people out from a major world power. He wouldn't have had both the deep Israelite ethnic roots plus a world-class education and training. The only reason he got both of those things is because Pharaoh tried to kill the babies. Second of all, if Moses hadn't blown it the way he did, he never would have found the humility he needed to lead God's people. The book of Numbers says that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. Would you like to know where he got that humility? He got it in the desert in Midian. That's where he got it. You see, before the desert, Moses had the ethnic roots needed. He had the training needed, but not the meekness and the humility needed. And so, do you see what's happening here? 
Are you catching this? In the midst of awful circumstances and awful sin, God is weaving it all together for his purposes. It's pretty amazing. When Paul says in Romans 8.28 that God works all things out for the good of those who love him, here is exhibit A, folks. Here's exhibit A. Hear me this morning. You can't muck up your life. You can't do it. Oh, you will try. Oh, you will try. World's worst right here. You won't believe how hard I've tried to muck up my life. Woo! Ask my mama, ask my wife. Wow. I have tried to muck up my life and I haven't been able to do it. Why? Because I can't. Nothing can. Nothing can muck up my life. I cannot fail. And you can't either. Circumstances can't derail you, and sin can't derail you. It cannot. In fact, that's what it means to be a Christian. Okay? It's actually what it means. Being a Christian means when you win, you win. And when you lose, you win. That's what it means. <laughs> God is always faithful to his people, even when they are not faithful to him. Even when they suffer, even when they sin, he is faithful. And God is weaving everything in your life together for your good and for his glory. Everything. Everything. Every sin, every heartache, every tear, every failure, everything. He's weaving it all together for your good and for his glory. Oh, now you can't see this happening. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You're not aware of it, okay? But it is happening. The Israelites weren't aware of it either. Moses wasn't aware of it either. Oh, but it was happening. God was weaving it all together for their good and for his glory. It is happening to you whether you realize it or not, and it's happening because of our next two points. Here's how it happens. Let's look at it together. Point number two that this author shows us. The author shows us that God shows his power through evil. God shows his power through evil. What do I mean? Well, the author shows us that God uses the plans of his enemies to destroy his enemies. It is hilarious. You're not laughing, but it is hilarious. God uses the plans of his enemies to be the very things that destroy them. It's awesome. Think about it. Here's what Martin Luther has to say about our text this morning. Martin Luther writes, quote, In the midst of this tyranny... When the edict was being carried out most severely, God allowed Pharaoh's enemy to be born. And Moses, who would plunge Pharaoh into the sea, 
would have to be nourished by Pharaoh's own daughter in his own house. God made this king, the sworn enemy of Israel, himself raise the Savior, the deliverer of the people of God. Pharaoh was nourishing a viper in his own bosom, and later it would bite him. He was raising a wolf which would tear him to pieces and devour him, end quote. This is the power of our God. Don't you see? It was Pharaoh who tied the rope that became his noose. It was Pharaoh. And exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing is happening in your life right now. Right now. Whatever wicked scheme Satan is implementing in your life, that scheme will be the very thing that undoes his plan and accomplishes God's plan. You're not laughing, but it is funny. Did you know that there are only two times in the Bible where God laughs? Two times. Only two. Where God laughs. And would you like to know what he's laughing at? In both cases, God is laughing at the plans of the devil. In both cases. (laughs) The devil makes his plans and God laughs. Because those plans will be the very plans that undoes him. And God thinks that's funny. I do too. You don't, but I do. I think it's awesome. (laughs) But that's not all. God shows his power through evil, but also, this brings us to our last point in your outline. God also shows his power through weakness. So he shows his power through evil, but he also shows his power through weakness. Now, I was reading this text earlier this week, and something that kind of started to bother me. I, I, I had to scratch my head a little bit and think really hard on this. Because, here's what, here's what bothered me. At first glance, it appears that God squandered a golden opportunity with Moses. Okay? That's what it appears like. You see, Moses was in a seat of power. And all the commentaries I have on Exodus say that Moses was in line to potentially be the next pharaoh of Egypt. He was next in line to be the pharaoh of Egypt. And so I thought to myself, once this kind of dawned on me, I was like, well, wouldn't it make a lot more sense for God to just let Moses become pharaoh? Right? And then rescue his people that way. Like, just let Moses become Pharaoh, and then his first day in office be like, oh yeah, uh, Hebrews, y'all can go home. End of story, Exodus over. Now granted, it wouldn't be as compelling of a story, but it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? I mean, that makes sense to me. Why not just make Moses Pharaoh? Well, that makes sense to us because that's how we want to operate. We want to operate through power and strength. We want the trophy, baby. 
We want credit. We want glory. That's how we operate. That's what we want. But that is not how God operates. It is not. He doesn't want a young, powerful Pharaoh leading his people. He wants an elderly shepherd to lead them. So, Moses, fearing for his life and rejected by his own people, he runs to the desert, to the land of Midian, becoming a lonely stranger sitting on a well in the middle of nowhere. He had tested his strength and found out that, in fact, he was very, very weak. And so for the next 40 years, Moses lived in Midian, raising a family as a sojourner. The great deliverer became a lowly shepherd. The child who was thrillingly rescued from the Nile became a quiet man, living a quiet life, far from the people he was born to save. And you know, that should have been the end of Moses' story. That should be the end. That's predictable, right? You know, hey, he had a chance, he had his shot, and he blew it. The trophy was right there, and he, ah, he blew it. Next, that's what we expect. Because we think the glory comes through power and strength, and Moses is weak, and so Moses is out. And therefore, in the coming chapters... It will be a shock to our system (laughs) to see God choose this weak and sinful man to accomplish the greatest rescue the world has ever seen. But you see, it is through. It's through the weakness of Moses that the power of God is seen to be all the more glorious. Slowly, very slowly, Moses learns the difficult and necessary lesson that weak people have a strong God. You see, because when the Israelite nation finally comes out of Egypt and stands on the shore of the Red Sea with deep waters in front of them, chariots of Egypt bearing down behind them, and panic inside of them. This is what Moses will tell his brothers and sisters. He will proclaim to the entire nation, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Just be quiet. Just be quiet and watch. Exodus 14, 13 through 14. This, my friends, is the God of the Bible. He is always faithful and always fighting for us. Using weakness. 
and using humble servants to accomplish his wonders. That is how God always saves, just in the most unexpected ways, the smallest of ways, the weakest of ways. And so it shouldn't surprise us when God came to accomplish his greatest wonder, the salvation of the entire world from sin and death. It shouldn't surprise us that he came in a lowly manger in Bethlehem. It shouldn't surprise us. You see, everyone in the first century was waiting on a great deliverer capital D. They were waiting. And they were waiting on a promised deliverer to come in power and great strength, driving out Rome in a spectacular display of glory. That's what they were waiting on. But instead, the deliverer came as he always does. He came in weakness. To a family so poor that his first bed was a cattle trough. And Jesus Christ, our deliverer, would indeed lead us out of slavery in a wondrous display of God's power to save. But that power, that power was displayed not through triumph, but through defeat. Not through strength, but through weakness. In the bloodied and beaten and crucified body of Jesus on the cross, we see the ultimate picture of defeat and weakness. But my friends, that defeat, that weakness was the very means which God purchased us and brought us into his forgiveness and into his new life and his kingdom. It was through the blood and broken body of Jesus that we were delivered out of slavery to sin and brought into freedom in Christ. It was through defeat and weakness. I mean, who would have ever thunk this? Who would have ever made this up? That instead of using power and coercion to deliver us, God instead used death. Oh, not our death. Not Roman death. No, he used the death of his son to deliver us. Oh, but of course, um, death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. You see, on the third day, Jesus was raised to glorious life by the power of God. And the Apostle Paul says that exact same power is at work in you today, right where you sit. The exact same power that rose Christ from the dead is at work in you today. And you respond and you say, well, oh, I don't feel that. What do you mean? preacher. I don't feel resurrection power. <laughs> if anything, I feel weak. 
and sinful and needy. Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point. God's power works through weakness. Resurrection power comes through defeat and weakness. That's what Jesus taught Paul. You know, when Paul was feeling weak and he prayed to Christ, three times he prayed for Jesus to remove the weakness from him, and Jesus responded, no. No, I will not. For my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. Now, this makes no sense to us because we're people with trophy cases. We're winners, dadgummit. We want the spotlight. We want the winner's stand. We want the glory. And this makes no sense to us that God would work this way. And of course, it didn't make any sense to the Israelites either. <laughs> we will see over the next chapters them mumbling and grumbling and crying and complaining about what God is up to. We will see the same thing. And who could blame them? You and I would do exactly the same thing. We do it now. <laughs> you know what the Israelites were saying to themselves during their slavery and their suffering? They were saying, maybe there is a God in heaven somewhere, but he don't give a rip about us. I mean, look at us. These chains are heavy. And this work is hard. So maybe there's a God up there, but he sure as heck don't care about me. That's what they were saying. And isn't that exactly what our hearts wonder too? It's the same thing. We say to ourselves in our suffering, we say, could there be a God in heaven who would let me suffer like this? I mean, my plans have come to nothing. All my dreams, all my desires for my life are done. They're gone. Here I am just sitting on a well in the middle of nowhere. And my sinful heart feels bound up in slavery to sin as I do all of the things I know I shouldn't do. The things I hate to do, that's what I do. Is there a God in heaven who could love me? Weak, doubting, struggling, and sinful me. The Bible's answer is yes. Yes, there is. Yes, there is a God for slaves. Slaves in Egypt and slaves to sin. Yes, there is a God for weak people like me and weak people like you. And that God has heard our cries. And He has acted on our behalf. He has. To Israel He came as Yahweh to free those in slavery and lead them to Himself. And to us He came as Jesus in a manger to free us from slavery to sin and lead us to Himself. He has acted on our behalf. And so in your struggles and grief, in your groaning and doubting, 
in your weakness and failure, you have a God who loves you and who has acted already on your behalf. Jesus Christ, who died in weakness and now lives by the power of God, is faithful to deal with us just as he did with Moses, showing us our inability to save ourselves. Don't you know that's what, that's what your desert is all about? It's to prove to you that you cannot save yourself. He's showing you that. In his great mercy, he's showing you that. And at the same time, he is declaring to you his intention to save and sanctify you by his own grace, by his own power, by his own will, not yours. He intends to save you by his grace and his grace alone because his grace is sufficient for you. So, you say that you are weak and sinful. And I say, thank God. <laughs> Whew. Thank God. For he is the friend of sinners. And his power is made perfect in weakness.